Now, on Book TV's Afterwards, MSNBC's Joyanne Reed argues that President Trump is damaging American democracy. She's interviewed by author and journalist Sophia Nelson. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Joy, welcome to the program. Let me say first off, congrats on this book. It is powerful, and in a word, it's disturbing all at one time. Uh, and I want to get into that. And by disturbing, I mean you've uncovered some pretty profound stuff here relative to the 45th president of the United States. And so the first question that I have uh, for you in this amazing book titled uh, The Man Who Sold America is tell me why did you write the book and why now? Well, first of all, Sophia, I want to say thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, and I got to tell you, the reason that I wrote the book principally is just because covering this president, covering Donald Trump, it's like a fire hose of news that's constantly coming at you, a fire hose of, of bad things. And they each kind of erase the thing before. So in one day, you can have 10 headlines where the first one for any other president would have been catastrophic and maybe even presidency ending. And then that gets erased from the memory hole, literally sometimes within the same day, if not within days. And so I, the main reason I wrote the book was just to preserve the history, as much of it as I could get in um, before it's gone, to be honest, before we forget what's happening. I think that this presidency is so unique and so, in a lot of ways, uniquely destabilizing and dangerous to our democracy that I just wanted to remember it. So that was the main reason. And the second reason was kind of as sort of a, a, a plea or a warning. I don't know which is the better word, because I feel sometimes like Americans feel that what we are is eternal, that we can't lose it. Um, that this position we've gained as the leader of the free world, as the you know, preeminent democracy, the shining city on a hill, people think that's permanent. But we're a young country and it can slide and it can slide fast. So I wanted to kind of sound the alarm that the things that we used to send monitors to other countries to you know, prevent happening can happen to us and in a lot of ways are happening to us. Joy, I think that's a really great point. It leads me to the second question I have. You know, again, you did a really great job. I mean, this book is You've got to read this book because this book is part, it's filled with reporting, but it's also insights from you. It's got a good historical context. But one of the things that uh, really made me pause was where you talked about this Trump presidency doesn't, didn't just happen in 2015 in the primaries or in 2016. Like, there was a lead up to this happening, to the Trump presidency. And I want you to talk a little bit about that. Uh, how does a guy who was on the tabloids, he was the real estate playboy. <laughs> How does that guy go from that to leader of the free world? And specifically, Joe, I want you to get into a little bit. You talked about this post-Obama white fear, uh, some rage, birtherism, Confederate statutes, the alt-right, all of that, and how we got to this presidency. Yeah, I mean, the reality is that Donald Trump benefited from a couple of things. One is celebrity. You know, he was able to worm his way into the American zeitgeist really over the course of decades of presenting himself to the media, particularly to the New York media. And I think that's important. He presented himself to the New York media as far back as the 1980s as this billionaire Lothario um, who the women could not keep his hands off of. Here's a supermodel who wants Donald Trump. He could date Princess Diana if he really wanted to. All of these myths that he made about himself, none of which were actually true. He was just a serially married guy who inherited 
the equivalent of $413 million from his father. Um, but he presented himself as this kind of Horatio Alger figure. And he did it in part because he wanted the respect of the Manhattan elite. In that real estate world, the Trumps were kind of looked down on. Um, they were Queens rich, uh, as we say. Um, they were not considered part of the Manhattan elite. But Donald Trump wanted to be. He wanted to break out of his father's Queens empire and be respected by The New York Times, by Newsweek, by Time magazine, by those people. Anna Wintour, he wanted to respect him as a part of the fashion elite. He wanted to be a part of that. And he never could quite get in. So what he did instead is he created sort of a tabloid version of fame. And it did get him into the zeitgeist. He was in, you know, more than 67 rap songs referenced him as like a synonym for wealth. Trump equals rich. Um, he was able to get the New York tabloids to follow his exploits, even when he was pretending to be his own publicist, John Barron, and pitching them stories about his sexual exploits. He was able to get on Howard Stern and be a weekly guest, you know, giggling about sometimes weirdly his daughter. Um, but he 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 embedded himself in the national conversation. So people would ask him, you know, Phil Donahue or Larry King would want his thoughts on world events. He had no expertise in them, but he was constantly being asked what he thought. And twice before, he tried to translate that into a run for president, or at least he threatened to, but he never pulled the trigger on it. I think where we got Trump was that he understood the New York media because that's where he came from. He understood the way to use celebrity because by the time he got on The Apprentice, he was actually a broke man. Um, his empire was crumbling, but he managed to sell an image of success and wealth and privilege that kind of bamboozled the country. So, so Joy, when you combine that, that... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, mm -hmm. but bring that to the national no, stage. So, so how do we get from there, the New York guide, to this national stage? Let's go to the 2015 primary and really what I think you really got into well in the book was this notion of Trump kind of wanting um for lack of a better word revenge if you will on like you said he was looked down on uh you you talk about the White House Correspondents Dinner where President Obama remember when he clowned Trump a little bit he was making yep. a joke of the birtherism and apparently Trump was very yep. angry about that talk about that a little bit because I want to get into the, the the seeds of anger and fear that he kind of played into yeah, I mean, people ask, how can a guy who lives in an all-gold palace relate to the average white working-class guy? Well, it's resentment. The thing they have in common is they resent the same people. Even as Donald Trump is coming up and he's making all this money, losing all this money, and then getting bailed out by his dad and the Russians, he's really resentful that the culture doesn't respect him, that the elites don't respect him. He shares that with a lot of the Republican base. I think the other 16 people who ran for president in 2015, they thought the Republican base wanted what they want, which is tax cuts for the wealthy, deregulation, small government. Donald Trump understood that they want revenge that they want revenge for a country they feel is culturally sliding away from them, that cultural cool is now in the hands of black people, that you look at the NBA, it's black elites, you look at TV, it's Oprah, you look in the White House, it's Barack Obama, you look at music, it's hip-hop. It's all of these non-white, non-Christian cultures encroaching on white America's one-time dominance and control over the, over the American culture. You know, white Americans still have most of the wealth, but black and brown and gay and all sorts of other people were taking over what the country meant, what it meant to be Americans, the pride of place. And Donald Trump 100% got that because he shares it. Remember in the 80s, he used to complain about Japan. Japan is killing us. No one respects us in the world. China is destroying us. He always had that same mentality, 
So when he walked, you know, rode down that escalator in Trump Tower and said the Mexicans are rapists and they're coming over and they're sort of invading our country, um, the base got that. That's how they feel. They, they locate their pain, their sense of loss, the sense they're not doing as well as their parents, and they blame that on non-white migrants, and so does he. So what Donald Trump did is he took advantage of decades, if not a century, of white resentment, of growing white resentment against the culture and against governmental assistance for people who are not white and not Christian, and he turned it into a run for president. And obviously a lot of people believed what he wanted what he wanted and that's how he was able to win so joy would you say that this was in a sense then a backlash to the obama presidency i mean is that what this comes down to are we oversimplifying when we say that what do you think i don't think so because i think barack obama sophia represented bodily in human form all the things that the white working class if you just put them in a category writ large were resentful of not all of them obviously but the trumpists they resent the fact that here's this ivy league educated black man with this exotic name that in their minds was a muslim comes from immigrant roots and then he takes the presidency over the objections of the majority of white americans he wins by 10 million votes with young voters lgbt voters black voters brown voters surging him into the presidency at the same time the census is announcing and broadcasting that america will be a non-white majority country by 2047 rolling back the date from when they first announced it in 1998 during the Clinton years, that it would be like 2052. So white America is watching the tide of demographic change move into the White House in human form. This black family with their black children with this last name, Obama, middle name Hussein. And they just feel the country sliding away. And Obama represented that in physical form. At the same time, the old coal industry and steel industry are dying away. The America they remember, that their parents and grandparents remember, is sliding away while the Obama world is sliding in. And when Barack Obama gets reelected, even though his ratings with every single group of white Americans, old, young, female, male, you know, Midwestern, Southern, everywhere, tank, and he still wins by five million votes. The resentment against Obama and Obamaism with its DACA for undocumented migrants, with its profound changes in marriage uh, through the Supreme Court, with this liberalization on things like health care, even though they got health care out of it. There was a huge resentment in a large part of white America, and that drove in the backlash. You know, I, I kind of liken Donald Trump to the redemption period and, and Barack Obama to um, the period after the Civil War, the Reconstruction period. Whenever we've had forward progress socially in this country that has benefited people of color, there's always been a backlash. Reconstruction bred the redemption movement. The civil rights era bred the Nixon era and the Reagan era. And unfortunately, the backlash to the Obama era is Trump. Interesting, Joy, which brings me to my next question. I'm going to read a passage of your book to you briefly here. It's in your chap first chapter. Um, and again, it was one of those moments where, where I just kind of stopped. And, and here's, here's what you write here. Uh, many Americans awoke on the morning after the 2016 presidential election to an unthinkable outcome, one that many deemed a mark of cultural decline. Politics often brings unpleasant surprises, but Donald Trump, president of the United States, was one that few, not the pundits, the professional statistical odds makers, the political press, or the Democratic candidate and her party came close to anticipating. Let's, let's, I mean, you kind of got into that, but what did everybody else miss 
that he tapped into. Yeah. I mean, everybody got it wrong. What did we miss? Yeah. Well, I think part of it is this notion of American exceptionalism, right? So this backlash against uh, migration, migration by non-white and non-Christian people, this huge movement that's been flowing out of the Middle East and North Africa into Europe, that backlash was happening well before Trump. Brexit was an, a reaction largely against immigration into Britain and, and white Britons, particularly in the sort of countryside and in the suburbs, saying we don't want that. We want to be British in the sense of having back a sort of white British country. That's what UKIP was pushing. I think Americans didn't think that could happen here, to be blunt. I think Americans saw hmm. the Obama era as a mark of forward progress that couldn't be reversed, as a tide that was only rolling forward. And so people saw that and the sort of absurdity of Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is president. It just sounded absurd. This is a reality show TV star. Americans wouldn't want that. Not after we were the country that produced Obama. And so I think that people just couldn't fathom that that, that many Americans, that 62 million people would choose that over progress. But, you know, Michael Moore, I was on um, uh, with Michael Moore on Real Time, and I recount this story in the book that I'm sitting between him and Tony Schwartz, and Michael Moore sitting to my left predicts that Donald Trump is going to win. I didn't believe it because I'm a data girl. I believed in the data. I thought, well, I mean, the data says that Democrats should be able to build on what Barack Obama did in 2012 and win. And Michael Moore said something interesting, and then he elaborated on it in a column afterwards. He said, a lot of white Americans look at that eight years of Obama and they say, okay, great. Next, then we're going to have a woman president. We're told now we have to have Hillary. And then next is going to be the gay president and then the Latino president. Where does it stop? So in their minds, the forward march of progress is, is a backward march for them. And the sense that the country is being lost and sliding away is very deep-seated and real. And when you combine that with the feelings of a lot of particularly ethnic whites in the North, that the Democratic Party used to focus on them, and now the party is focusing on others, focusing on immigrants, even people without documents, focusing on black people's concerns, not us. And so Donald Trump being the guy saying, I'll focus on you, just you, and I'll turn this country back in your favor and I'll fight the right people. I'll hurt the right people. There is a there's almost a Roman Coliseum aspect to Trumpism where he's hurting the people they want to see hurt, that they're lashing out internally in resentment at the way their lives are. And Donald Trump says, I'll locate your pain in these people and I'll put them in the Coliseum. The lions will eat the right people. So, you and know, that's how Donald Trump was able to win. You know, Joy, what you're really saying is, and you do, I think, agree. look, we all have our politics. Some of us are more conservative, some of us more liberal, some are centrist. But I think you make a really good case for everything you're saying. And I think what you're really talking about is they're two different Americas. Uh, what do you think? I mean, it seems yeah. like we're really, depending on who you talk to, there are two different yep. Americas. Kind of expound on that a little bit. What do you think about that? Are, are we two different Americas? A hundred percent. And we've always been two Americas. I mean, I mean, make no mistake, this country's always been two countries. You know, at first, it was the two countries based on where the money came from. So the South was the America where the agrarian economy exploded this country into economic power based on free labor. You know, 226 years of free labor by African slaves and by Native Americans who were first enslaved. And so that slave-based economy, which, by the way, there was slavery in the North, too. It was everywhere. But the North figured out a way to make money off of the commerce of the South. So they the North became the center of commerce. And so that America was about moving money. And the Southern America was about essentially controlling humans, controlling people and using their labor. Those two countries have never 
really fused 100% into one. I mean, in times of war or the Great Depression, everyone could get together and there was a governmental sort of sale of a story that every American could believe in. Um, and that worked and it held this country together, these two Americas together in times of real stress. But keep in mind, the two Americas went to literal war and 600,000 people died because one America knew that it couldn't survive without that free labor and was willing to kill its sons to keep slavery forever. That's what every single Southern um, constitution of the seceding states said, slavery forever. And the North was willing to go to war and send its sons to die to keep this one, to keep the country as one. We've never really fused into one country. We've just had one side essentially temporarily defeated. The civil rights movement had to happen because the supposedly defeated country never really declared defeat. They never accepted defeat. And so whether or not those people moved into the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, they've moved back and forth. That America that still at its core wants to be a white Christian country has never really conceded defeat and has never really admitted that the multicultural country, the multicultural America, even has a right to exist, even has a right to rule. So we're fighting over which of these two countries has a right to rule. And if you ask Mitch McConnell, he's very clear. Only his America has a right to rule. The other America's president doesn't even have a right to name a Supreme Court justice. They have no right to vote. They have no right to even ask for the vote. They will be gerrymandered out of power. They will be prevented from going to the polls. They will be held down so that his America can rule. And the kind of irony of it is that white Americans are being sort of attracted into the Mitch McConnell America. But for the most part, they're not getting anything out of it. You know, Joy the average white American isn't winning. It's the really, really rich. And the really, really rich control that America and are never going to let it go. Let's put a pin in that because you, you, you kind of jumped ahead of me where I wanted to go. But we'll go there, which is let's <laughs> talk about the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and President Donald Trump and their judicial appointments. You know, President Trump's already named two Supreme Court justices. If he gets a second term, I don't know that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to stay on the court, you know, another four years if she's not going to want to retire. So he might get a third or a fourth Supreme Court pick. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about Trump's lasting impact vis-a-vis -vis these judicial appointments. Well, absolutely. Mitch McConnell has made it very clear that he has one purpose, one principal purpose, which is to control the courts forever. Because if you think about it, Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump's America, in their minds, lost control, not so much because of legislative attacks on them. Yeah, the civil rights movement, all of those bills that passed, the 65 uh, immigration bill, they really don't like, right? But in, in their minds, it was the courts that enforced the hegemony of this other America. And starting not with Roe v. Wade, but really with the rulings from Brown v. Board on, suddenly the federal government was telling southern states they had to integrate their schools, was telling cities they had to integrate uh, their neighborhoods, and was telling southern parents who pulled their children out of school after Brown v. Board and put them in private schools that they couldn't have a tax exemption for those schools. Those were the rulings that really kicked off the fury of the religious right. It wasn't Roe v. Wade. There was a sort of delayed reaction to Roe when it first happened. I write in the book about the fact that there was sort of a benign reaction to it, but there was a furious reaction to the Supreme Court rulings that said segregated schools could not receive federal funds. And Paul Weyrich and other uh, sort of progenitors of the religious right realized that was not a good look. It was not a good cosmetic appearance for the religious right. So they focused and refocused uh, their base on abortion. And that has become kind of the 
locus of uh, conservative activism ever since. But people like Mitch McConnell, they want really two things. They want control of the courts forever because they know no matter what the demographics are, no matter how much the culture changes, if they control the courts, they control the country. They can stop the tide of change and essentially assert minority rule. And the other thing they want is for the very rich and very big corporations to go untaxed. If they could eliminate taxation, they would. It's a repeal the 20th century movement. And so the idea of trying to encase the rich in protection from the poor to make sure that they don't have to pay taxes and don't have to care for the sick and the elderly and the immigrant. If they could get that and control of the courts, that's what Mitch McConnell wants. And his perfect avatar is Trump. Because Trump takes that agenda that is for the elite, the literal elite, and he wraps it in populism. And he convinces white Americans who aren't even benefiting that the way they benefit is that Trump hurts the right people, that they can locate their pain in those migrants and they don't have to think about the rich. They don't have to think about corporations. I interviewed Bruce Bartlett for the book, and he said very plainly that group of people does not like and fears democracy because they know democracy might bring the white poor and the black poor together, and that would be very bad for the rich. You know, it's interesting. Again, uh, Joy, we're talking about your new book, The Man Who Sold America, subtitled Trump and the Unraveling of the American Story. And again, you had some really powerful stuff in here, but this really struck me where I had to read it several times here. Uh, and you open with this and you open with these words here. You say to truly understand Donald Trump, you need to have lived in New York City in the 1980s and 1990s when his business and marital escapades were a tabloid staple. Or maybe you just need to have grown up on Batman, Gotham City. <laughs> which the brooding billionaire Bruce Wayne polices as his vigilante alter ego is an exaggerated dystopian send-up of old New York. Now, you've compared the president of the United States of America to Batman, <laughs> to Gotham City. Help me with that and break that down, because I thought it was a powerful uh, a paradox, an analogy, if you will, where you're, you're making an equation there. Break that down. Well, in my analogy... Donald Trump is actually the Joker. <laughs> and, you know, I use that quote from the Joker. And because he reminds me of him or the penguin, like the, the cover photo for the book, he kind of looks like the penguin. Yeah. Donald Trump is sort of a figure that's ripped out of the comic book universe with that hair that's like sort of cantilevers and it's not clear where it starts <laughs> or where it or where it finishes. And just his overly long suits, these huge suits, his supposed billionaire who doesn't seem to have a tailor, right? But in a lot of ways, it's his manner. It's his odd way of speaking. It's his over-the-top top exaggerated rallies, the way he tries to sort of hypnotize the press and his base. He reminds me in a lot of ways. I grew up on DC Comics. I know, you know, Marvel is the hotness right now in terms of the movies, but I, I was more of a DC girl, Batman, Superman, Aquaman, who's now cool, by the way, thanks to the, the new movie that came out. Um, Donald Trump is sort of the Joker in the sense that, let's say, Barack Obama is his Batman, because the Joker and Batman are both billionaires, both brooding, both angry. But Batman polices Gotham and grumbles and scowls around Gotham because he really is angry about injustice. And so he uses his billions and his brooding to try to protect people from villains. Whereas the Joker, who's also a billionaire in most of the universes, uh, the DC universes, he uses his wealth and his time on his hands to just attack Batman. Everything about Batman makes him mad. Everything about Batman just just, you know, destroys sort of his psyche. And so his goal is to just destroy Batman. 
And in a lot of ways, Barack Obama is Trump's Batman. He's obsessed with him. He can't stop thinking about him. He wants to top everything he did. Obama gets a Nobel Prize. He wants a Nobel Prize. <laughs> Obama's beloved. He wants to be more beloved. He seems to be so zero focused on Barack Obama that it is sort of a Joker Batman relationship. I want to share with our viewers the quote because you open with this quote since we're talking about the Joker and it says, introduce a little anarchy upset the established order and everything becomes chaos. I'm an agent of chaos. Now, you talked about this at the outset of this conversation here about how everything about this presidency is it's a little bit like Pigpen. That's my analogy. You know, Pigpen, he's got a bunch of dirt <laughs> swirling around him. Talk about the chaos yeah. that is Donald Trump and how that's really impacted our, how we cover politics now and how we react to it, this yeah. constant chaos. Uh, enlighten us a little bit about that, because you talk about it in the book. Yeah, you know, another way to put it is Littlefinger in Game of Thrones said chaos is a ladder, right? And chaos is a ladder. When everything is so chaotic, the media can't focus on one thing. Donald Trump will literally be accused of rape on Monday, and it's forgotten by Wednesday, because he's throwing so much chaos into the system that it's hard to keep putting your finger in the dike. It's hard to keep up with him. And he understands how to use chaos to get what he wants. The, the more chaos he sows, the more he keeps refocusing attention on himself, it's very hard to focus on Stephen Miller being the architect of the policy of caging little kids and ripping them away from their parents and holding abuelas for 50 days in detention at $750 a day. And who's profiting? Oh, John Kelly. Like, all of that is so, compli is so complex. Well, what he's doing is simple. He's tweeting a crazy thing. Mm -hmm. He's going to the DMZ and doing a TV show with Kim Jong-un. Now he's flying to Europe and he's sitting with, you know, Mohammed bin Salman and calling him his best friend. He's doing all of these things that seem mad. But the press has to, A, try to figure out how to cover him. He's president of the United States. There's this tick in the media to cover him as president, to give him all of the honorifics and all the deference that the American press, unique in many of the Western world, give to presidents and at the same time this madness and i think that he understands that we don't understand how to, how to cover that and we don't understand how to keep up with that and that the media does not want to be in an adversarial relationship with him so the media would give him so much deference and so much give and he knows he's going to get it so he complains and he whines and he pushes that deference window even further out. He demands more deference. He demands more of an opportunity and then he fills that space with chaos. It's made him extremely hard to cover, extremely hard for Democrats to stop, and it's made him, to be blunt, extremely well-positioned to get reelected because chaos yeah. is a ladder. Yeah, you know, I, I'm in agreement with you on that. I think that when it becomes so overwhelming, people check out because people are busy now, right? Yes. You live in life. You got to take care of the kids. You got to work. You got to keep home. And people now see it almost as entertainment, uh, which brings me to, again, and I really want to get back to this because... The title of your book is profound. The man who sold America. You're saying that the president of the United States, both before he became president, and let's talk about during his presidency. You know, there's a lawsuit about the emoluments clause, which, of course, is the clause in yes. the Constitution that elected officials, particularly in the executive, are not to benefit from their high office. Most presidents, Joyce, you know, put their assets in blind trust. They sell off yes. assets. Not this president. I want you to spend some time talking about... A couple of things. One, talk to us about this notion of who Donald Trump is financially and how it is that he sold America. Secondly, and I think very present at the moment, is his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and his daughter, Ivanka, who are both, by the way, employees 
of the White House, mm -hmm. of the administration, but are still actively engaged in the business dealings of the Trump Organization. Talk about that and how it's an open just, I'm actually shocked that they're doing this in broad daylight and no one seems to care. Yeah. So talk about that a little bit. And and no one seems to be able to stop it. I mean, one of the principal fears of the founders of this country um, was the president of the United States falling under the sway of a foreign power. They wrote the Emoluments Clause into the Constitution, along with the census, by the way, uh, which Donald Trump doesn't seem to respect either, for a reason, because they wanted not to have a king. The whole reason that these very wealthy planters broke away from Great Britain was to rid themselves of a king. And so they really worried that America would not only eventually develop a king themselves, but that America, that king would then fall under the sway of foreign powers, whether it be Britain or France or some other empire. Donald Trump, number one, doesn't know that history. It's clear that he is not a student of global history, let alone American history. Asked the other day by a New York Times reporter if he believes in liberal democracy. First of all, he said no, but he thinks liberal democracy means liberal politicians in California. So he doesn't even understand the basics, the basic tenets uh, of political theory. He didn't know what busing uh, for was somebody either. Who's pres yeah, he thought busing meant how do you physically get the yep, kids to school? That's what he thought. Right? So he, he he doesn't understand. He's mm -hmm. not a profound man. He's not a very learned man. Yes, he got into an Ivy League school, but his father paid his way in. So he's not a very bright man. But he understands one thing: marketing, right? And he understands marketing for one purpose: Trump to enrich himself. Donald Trump, I interviewed two people in this book who know Donald Trump very well, who made it very clear he didn't think he was going to win the presidency. He ran twice before as marketing stunts to, in one case, enhance his contract negotiations for The Apprentice with NBC. And then when he finally ran in earnest, it was in, in large part to put himself on the biggest global marketing stage ever so that he could impress the Kremlin to get his long-desired Moscow Trump Tower so that he could sell more apartments around the world, so that he could get richer. Because Donald Trump was never as rich as he claimed to be. And so Donald Trump understood that the way to make money, big money, was to get on that stage. And when he won, it was sort of a surprise to him and everyone else. But then he realized, you know what, I can make money doing this. Look at the people he admires, the people who are pure kleptocrats, whose position in government enriches them, their families, and their cronies. Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong-un, People like that are his lodestar. When Xi Jinping became president for life of China, he congratulated him. He thinks that's great. When Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines says, I can personally kill people. Well, Donald Trump said he could personally shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and he wouldn't lose a step and he wouldn't lose any support. Trump admires the violent, the kleptocratic. He admires the autocrat because in his sense, he's like, now I'm president. Now it looks like he has an opportunity to make money. His kids... Uh, well, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and his daughter, Ivanka, made over $100 million just off his hotels while serving for free with no salary as his advisors. His sons and his entire brood packed up, other than his little son, Baron, and went off to England to enjoy the fruits of America's labor in Great Britain, whining and dining themselves with the monarchy in Britain. And I suppose they see themselves as sort of petty monarchs in the United States. His cabinet is full of grifters, people who are using their positions to get richer, to make money. His entire presidency is a grift. And this is no different than his history. This is a man who, while broke, starred in The Apprentice, 
teaching people how to get rich. Julie, you know, me, and when the producers came in, go on. No, no, no. Let, let me ask you about that because, again, this is important, I think, that we're talking about something that's fundamentally core to the Constitution, which is the Emoluments Clause. And they, there have been lawsuits about this to be able to hold them accountable. The courts have allowed it to go forward. I'm curious about where you think it's going to end up. Do you think that there's just going to be this open ability to keep making this money, booking things at the Trump Hotel, and Congress is just not going to stop it? I mean, what do you think about that? And then we got a, I got well, a couple I mean, more questions before we wrap down, but go ahead. Absolutely. Well, think about the fact that the General Accounting Office allowed the President of the United States to lease the big hotel that he leases from the government that he runs in D.C. And that foreign governments are swiping their credit cards in that hotel, essentially paying him every time they show up. They are packing that hotel. They've boosted the room rental rate at that hotel. They're packing into Mar-a-Lago where the Secret Service, our Secret Service, has to pay the President of the United States a fee in order to rent space at Mar-a-Lago to protect him. They have to rent space in Trump Tower from Donald Trump to protect him and his family. Donald Trump is making more money off of the emoluments that he's sucking in as president than his salary that's 413 some odd thousand dollars a year, which he's donating which, with no evidence he's donating it, much like his charities. Donald Trump's sort of grubbing off of the presidency is in the open. He's not hiding it, you know, and there isn't any mechanism that I've been able to see that's stopping him. I interviewed Lawrence Tribe, who's one of the greatest constitutional uh, lawyers in this country for this book, among other really smart lawyers. And they've all essentially admitted that the Constitution never accounted for someone as brazen as Donald Trump. He's, he's busted through the emoluments clause. No one is stopping him. Congress doesn't seem to have figured out how to do it. The courts are slow, and he's able to just get away with it. You know, there was a tweet this morning from a former um, Dem uh, official in the Obama White House that said Donald Trump is getting away with it all. And sadly, frighteningly, he is. Well, let's get to that, because I think that raises another thing you talk about in your book, which is about the resistance. Now, in the 2017 uh, blue wave, certainly in states like mine in Virginia, you saw a massive amount of Democrats elected uh, flipping Republicans who had held office the same in 2018. So there does seem to be a pushback, right? There does seem to be a, uh, you have people like Ayanna Presley now and AOC and you have a new crop of women, more women than ever. So in one sense, he's getting away with it, right? But in the other sense, he's spurring on this new generation of leadership and, and resistance. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, the two Americas are in this cold civil war, as I described in the book. It is sort of a low-grade civil war, and in some cases the hot civil war because of some of the white nationalist violence that we're seeing perpetrated on our streets. But there is a resistance, and the majority, the actual majority, which is liberal whites, brown people, black people, uh, gay and lesbian and trans people, Asian Americans, that's the majority, right? They're the functioning majority, but they haven't been functioning because that majority has produced lower voter turnout than the the other America, the Trump America, which is almost exclusively white, they vote in high numbers, but so do black women. The highest numbers really are black women. So you're starting to see a reaction. You're starting to see women react. And so this, the last two midterm elections, the 2017 and 2018 elections, produced record turnout among women, among people of color, and among young voters. In the 2018 cycle, more uh, uh, millennials voted at higher percentage than baby boomers for the first time in history, for, in the first time, for the first time since 21-year-olds were able to vote. So the reality is, is that the, the actual majority has woken up. They are frightened enough and alarmed enough by Trumpism that they are coming to the table. But whenever that happens, there's also a reaction. Again, there's always a backlash. So I would expect that in 2020, you're going to see the most profound 
far-reaching and aggressive voter suppression effort we've probably ever seen, at least since the 1950s and 60s. It's going to be dirty. It's going to be a dogfight. And it's going to be involving foreign influence. Every foreign nation that wants Donald Trump to stay in has an open door to come in and meddle in our election and attack our election. The Russians, the Saudis, the Israelis, anyone who wants to come in, Trump and William Barr, his attorney general, have essentially invited them in. So I would expect a very ugly election in 2020. Let's pause there, and I want to I want to talk about that and segue a little bit because what you've said again is it's disturbing. You remember I opened with this book is powerful, but it's disturbing. (laughs) Um, And I want you to talk a little bit about um, the voter suppression issue and how it impacted two candidacies we saw in the last cycle, which is Andrew Gilliam in Florida and Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Now you had two young African American candidates in the deep, deep red South narrowly lose those elections. Can you talk a little bit about how voting rights is going to be impacted in this age of Trump vis-a-vis those type of candidacies? What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And Andrew Gillum was a case of the Bradley effect, where the polls showed him uh, easily winning that race and he didn't win. But it was a much more complicated race there that had to do with absentee ballots not coming back. There was profound amounts of voter suppression in Florida. Remember, Florida is where people who hate taxes go to retire. (laughs) Okay, if you hate taxes (laughs) and you live in Pennsylvania or Virginia or New York, where do you go to retire? Florida. Okay. And so it's filling up with anti-tax conservatives every year. Yeah. I mean, the fun grandmas move to Las Vegas, right? So the fun grannies are in Las Vegas at the slots and the angry grannies are in Florida. So Florida is getting redder and redder and redder over time. Um, So there's a little bit more complicated case there, but it does have to do with voter suppression, particularly since in this last cycle, voters overwhelmingly by two thirds majority, uh, by two thirds to one third voted in uh, to allow former felons to vote. 1.7 million people got back their right to vote. And the Republican governor and the Republican legislature promptly passed a poll tax and said, yeah, okay, you can vote, but you have to pay all your fines you've ever had in your life. It's a poll tax. So you can see the South is still the South. In the case of Georgia, it was an outright theft. There's no other way to describe what happened with Stacey Abrams other than theft. The man who was running the election, the secretary of state, who's now the governor, essentially engineered his own victory by not allowing hundreds of thousands of people, 38,000 people, just in the final stages of that cycle to vote. He essentially wiped them off the books and let them go to court and try to get back on. The voter suppression in Georgia is the most blatant right now. It outpaced North Carolina, which is saying a lot, and outpaced Texas, which is saying a lot. So what we have now is that the redemption uh, country is still fighting the uh, the country that wants reconstruction and they're fighting hard and they're not admitting defeat. So be vigilant, I would say, with your vote. I, I've encouraged people to not just register to vote and register other people, but check your vote. Make sure you're still on the rolls because they're not admitting defeat on the other side. They are fighting your right to vote tooth and nail and they're not going to stop. So, Joy, we've got about probably 15, 20 minutes left, and I I wanted to save the best for last, if you will. Again, this book, The Man Who Sold America, Trump and the Unraveling of the American Story is profound, it's powerful, and it's disturbing. I'm going to keep saying that. And by disturbed, I mean (laughs) you and I have talked a lot about a lot of behavior that we've never seen before from a president. And that brings me to the Mueller report, the special counsel. Now, uh, I would be remiss if we didn't discuss this. And you talk, talk about it in your book, you know, Michael Cohen sits in jail now. Paul Manafort's in jail now. A lot of people, Michael Flynn, there are a bunch of people in the Trump circle who are now in prison. Yet he's still president of the United States of America. And I want to get your thoughts on, one, the impact of the Mueller report and what you think about it. And then the response to it from Congress and whether or not you think it's going to lead to impeachment hearings. 
Um, and of course, we know uh, Mueller will testify before Congress, and um, that ought to be, you know, an interesting thing for us all to debate as it, it takes place. Mm -hmm. But I'm just curious about your thoughts on the Mueller report and whether or not it's going to result in impeachment hearings. Yeah, and you know, Sophia, I start the book with this superhero analogy, and I will say that I think for a lot of Democrats. Democrats were waiting with bated breath for Robert Mueller to go and put on his Superman cape and come in and save America from Donald Trump. And I think that was a fool's errand. I think so many people put all their stock in this one man, that this one, you know, former FBI director, this Republican, that this man was going to come in and save us from Donald Trump. That was never Robert Mueller's mission. He is a company man. He is a man by the book. He is an Eagle Scout. He is a literal, you know, Marine war hero from Vietnam. But he's not trying to be the hero that saves the republic. He had a very narrow mission, Robert Mueller. What did the Russians do to attack our election in 2016? He's produced a string of indictments about that. And what did the president do to try to obstruct the investigation into thing one? He did a thoroughgoing investigation of that and found 10 instances where this president did attempt to obstruct the investigation into the Russian attack. But he, because he's a man by the book, said that he couldn't act on what he found, A, because Donald Trump wouldn't talk to him. And pointedly enough, he didn't try to subpoena the president and make him talk to him. Um, and because there's a memo at the Department of Justice that says a sitting president can't be indicted. That's it. That's Robert Mueller A to Z. He found what to any prosecutor, a thousand prosecutors and counting now have said are crimes, obstruction of justice at least 10 times, but he can't do anything about it. He found a definite attack on our election and a campaign, the Trump campaign, that was more than open to getting that help and that in many instances sought and enjoyed and took advantage of that help. But he can't do anything about it because a special prosecutor, that's not his job. So I think what Democrats need to grapple with is that what he found would normally then lead to Congress picking up the ball and doing what the Constitution says is only their job, is unique to the House of Representatives. That the president, if he cannot be indicted, he can only be impeached, which is the indictment of the House. That's their version of an indictment. And if they won't do it, what Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, is saying is that they would rather wait for the state courts to indict Donald Trump when he's out of office. They'd rather wait and hope that some future federal prosecutor will indict Donald Trump when he's a civilian again. Okay, but that depends on the idea that he will be defeated in an election that will likely not be free and fair. The presumption that the American people will remove Donald Trump through an election that they assume, I guess, will not be riddled with foreign interference and will not be riddled with voter suppression and will be free, open and fair. And then he'll come out and who's going to indict him? Letitia James in New York. So it's all on her. I think that's such a misreading of the constitutional responsibility of Congress that it's kind of shocking. I'm actually surprised that people elected on the sheer scream of the majority reign in this president. Yes, health care was a big factor, but what about health care? Reign in this president so he won't take my health care. That's the message of the 2018 election. Reign in this president so that he won't take my rights away as a woman. Reign in this president so he'll stop the horrors at the border. So the Democrats come in, the people say, reign him in, and they say, We'll go to court for his taxes eventually. We'll wait like 180, 200 days. Eventually we'll get to that. We'll do hearings, but we'll let them testify in private. We'll proceed like he's sort of Jeb Bush, but a bit wackier. You know, yeah. They're proceeding like he's a normal president, and, and he's not normal. So I question what the strategy is. I don't know what it is, but it is weird. And, Joy, I think that to your point, uh, when you look at the Constitution, there are clear functions for the executive, the judiciary, 
and the legislative. And you're right, Congress has the unique duty to impeach the House, and then the Senate has to do the trial. Now, I think what concerns me as a citizen and should concern all citizens is this issue of we don't want to do our job because we might lose our job. Because that's what I hear. Is that what you hear? That is, that is what I hear, is that the Democrats are afraid that those 40 or so um, freshman Democrats who won in t Trump districts are the reason. The, the moderate Democrats in purple states are essentially saying, we can't touch Trump because his voters, some of them voted for us. And so we need to protect him to protect these seats. And in their mind, it's to protect the majority so that the House is in the Democrats' hands so that at least there's some check on the president. And I get it. They want to make sure that they don't lose the House. But the presumption that they'll keep the House if they just protect him and if they're just gentle enough with him and do deals with him and do transportation deals with him and let him sign bills, if they just encourage him to be a normal president, somehow that that will make Trump voters turn to the Democrats in 2020. It's interesting the two parties are so different. Republicans fear their base. Republicans won't take one step away from their base. And the media never demands that Republicans do it. They never say, when will Republicans attempt to appeal to the other side? Why don't Republicans reach across the aisle? That's never asked. And so Republicans understand they're never going to be asked to reach across the aisle. They can just defend their base. Democrats spend all their time thinking about the Republican base. They spend all their time. I, I kind of liken the Democrats to somebody who got broken up with, right? <laughs> they got broken up with by white working class voters. And even though they have like a, a, a cute new new thing going on and a new and a new friend, they want their old thing they back. They want their ex they back. They just want that old thing back. <laughs> they want their ex back so yeah, badly yeah. that they kind of ignore their current flame. That's interesting. And the current flame of the Democratic Party is black and brown people and, and gay and lesbian and trans people and liberal white folks. Like, that's their new thing. But they really want that old thing back. Yeah, before I wrap up with my last question, I want to I would be remiss <laughs> again. Let's talk about the 2020 election for a moment. Um, your thoughts, I mean, you're leading into this, which is if you were to go back to the beginning of 2019 as we're going to head into 2020 and you looked at the polls, Joe Biden was the man of the hour because he's that moderate white Democrat that they believe can win Pennsylvania and Michigan, et cetera. Talk about that to me, because I think you said something profound about this, this wanting the X back instead of dating who you have now, who, <laughs> you know, talk about Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and Buttigieg. What do you think about uh, who ends up, you know, being top dog in the Democrat party when we go into the primaries next year? Yeah, I mean, the big risk uh, when you neglect your new uh, flame to try to pine for your old flame is that your new flame will leave you. And Democrats just presume that their base has to vote. They have no choice. Like, it's a different orientation. Mm. Republicans would never say our base has nowhere to go. They're constantly catering to their base and doing whatever they right. want. The Democrats sort of leave their base on the, on the side because they just assume they've got nowhere to go. Where are black people going to go? Are they going to go to the party where the president has said in Charlottesville the neo-Nazis included very fine people? They going over there? Are they going to that party? No. So they have nowhere to go. But you know where else people can go? Home. Yep. They can and go not and vote. not vote. And Hillary, right. Cl yep. Hillary Clinton found out the yep. soft turnout uh, in three states. And it wasn't that all of these voters turned to Trump. I mean, maybe 9% of voters were Obama to Trump voters. The bulk of, her, of Hillary Clinton's problem was people who just stayed home, partly because of Russian in disinformation, which was pinning uh, young black voters in particular and saying mm -hmm. she is not for you. She's the mm -hmm. super predators lady. Don't vote. Don't vote. Mm -hmm. Don't vote. Vote Jill Stein. Write in Bernie Sanders. Just pinning and pinning and pinning 
progressive voters and black voters and saying don't vote for her and voter suppression. So there was a lot that decreased her vote, not so much a huge run over to Trump. He lost by three million votes. So I think Democrats are always fighting the last battle. They look at losing Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. They say, okay, we got to fix that. Who will fix that? We need a white working class guy. We need nostalgia to beat nostalgia. We need an older white guy to beat an older white guy because they're just fighting the last war. What they don't understand is that the president of the United States, who became president and won easily and won those states and was able to win re-election, was the black guy who incited liberal and people of color, liberal voters and people of color. Barack Obama did get crossover Republican votes because there was a backlash against the Bush era. But that's not how he won. He got people off the sidelines who never vote. Remember, only in a good year, six in 10 Americans vote. Four in 10 Americans don't. Who are those four in 10? Poor white folks, poor black folks, poor brown folks, poor Asian Americans, people who don't have any money. They're the majority of the non-voters. And most of those non-voters, if they voted, would vote for Democrats. Wow. Democrats should go get some of them. Do yeah. what Barack Obama did. So if I look at this field, who's the most like him? I would say right now, it's the women. It's Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. Mm -hmm. They're the candidates who are moving because women, and particularly women of color, are the constituency that's hungry. And I think that I would not be surprised if your final two were women. Warren, Harris, or Harris, Warren. Do you think, and then I'm going to ask you my last question so we can kind of hang it up there. Uh, Joy, do you think that there's a chance that there's a two-female ticket, uh, Harris-Warren, Warren-Harris? I think there is a chance. And not only that, but I would argue that there's a case for it. And the case I would make is that a re-elect, which is what this is, this is a re-elect, it is, it is a change election, right? You have to change what people already have. And most voters will stick with what they have. That's why it's so hard to unseat an incumbent. He's already raised $150 million. He's going to have tons of money. He has the power of incumbency. So you need to present change. What's the most profound change from Donald Trump and Mike Pence? Women. You take one, you double it. You then say to women, okay, white women, you only came in at 48% for Hillary Clinton. Can I get you to 49? Here's two women. One's white. One's not white, one's black, but also Asian. You've got a little bit of everything here. One is a little bit more to the left, one's a little bit more to the center. One's a prosecutor, you're not comfortable with that? She's leavened by this woman who has been the scourge of Wall Street. If you think uh, Warren is too liberal, you've got Harris, who's a little more to the center, and that prosecutorial background actually helps her in a general election. You've got somebody who could take down Donald Trump in a debate easily. Harris, obviously Kamala Harris would dismantle Donald Trump. But you've got Warren <laughs> who can speak to the white working class, right, and say to her, say to, say to the white working class. I've got a plan for that, right? I can offer you something better, something more profound than just the, um, the sort of porn of watching the, the pain of migrants. And, and giving you that sort of revenge porn against migrants is what Donald Trump is giving you. But he's killing your farms. He's destroyed your soybean business. He's destroyed your, e your economic prospects with his trade wars. He's done nothing really to raid in China. He just talks a lot. He's aligned us with dictators. What has he done for you, actually? Elizabeth Warren is saying, I have a plan that can actually help you. So you've got two women who can really make the argument in two very different ways and potentially ignite the Obama coalition. That ascendant coalition, I think, would rally to a Kamala Harris. And I think a lot of liberal white voters, and particularly white women, who went 52% for Donald Trump, if she can shave that by 1%, then that ticket wins. So it would not surprise me, and I think there's a case for it, if there was a Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, or Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris ticket. There is certainly a data case for it. There's a marketing case for it. And remember, you're going up against the best marketer in politics. You better have some marketing to come back at him with. 
All right, Joy, as we uh, have our last few minutes here, we've got about seven minutes left, and I, I wanted to save this question because it's the obvious question. You read the epilogue. Again, outstanding book, The Man Who Sold America, Trump, and the Unraveling of the American Story. And let me say to our, our people who are watching, whatever your politics, liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat, you should pick up this book and challenge yourself with it. Just read it. Keep an Thank open you. mind. Uh, because, Joy, you've known me a long time. I've known you a long time. You know yep. I'm center right and you're more yep. center left. Uh, we've been yep. friends for years, but I read this book and I had to shake my head at a lot of stuff. I had to think <laughs> about it. Yeah. So the obvious last question is, you know, as we talk about just recently, the president of the United States stepped into the DMZ and walked over into North uh. Korea for the first time. He has coddled... Yeah. Uh, the Saudi government, who is alleged to have put Jamal Khashoggi to death in a gr grisly, wicked, evil way. Um, what happens to America if Donald Trump is reelected in 2020? Let's talk about that as we wrap. What happens to America if Donald Trump gets four more years? Yeah. And, you know, this is something uh, at which I find myself in, in great alignment with the never Trumpers. I and mean, we were on the opposite sides of one another over the Iraq war. But I'm in 100 percent agreement with people like uh, Max Boot and Jennifer Rubin on this point. After World War Two, from World War Two on, America organized the Western world. Say what you want about our our internal politics. We really we never got that right. But the story that America told about itself, particularly after the Great Depression and World War II, where we were the last democracy standing, Europe was in ruins after the war. Nazism had destroyed Germany. Uh, Japan being in the Axis had destroyed Japan. We nuked two cities in Japan in order to end that war. The U.S. then stood itself up as the leader of the free world. And our story, what we told about ourselves, that we are a multiracial democracy in which all men are created equal. We weren't always perfect in carrying that out, but we said it. And every president said it. I mean, Sophia, you, you and I both, listen, there have, been there have been racist presidents before. We've talked about this before. There have been Woodrow Wilsons who were screening yep. Birth of a Nation in the White House. Yep. Racist as you could get. But he still sang the song of what America is. FDR said it. He said, we represent freedom from fear, freedom from want, freedom of religion, freedom of worship. Eisenhower, the hero of World War II, could have been a Democrat or a Republican. He was that nonpartisan. He said, let's build the great highway. Let's do a project together. It was not perfect. There was a lot about it that was super problematic if you were in a community of color, but it was a national project. Reagan said it. Even Nixon sang this song of America, which was so useful in organizing that West and having the West stand up, stand up to communism, stand up to the then Soviet Union, stand up, even when we didn't against apartheid. Ultimately, the American people made us stand up for Mandela. That story of America is powerful. And whether or not it's perfect, it's powerful. Donald Trump is the first president to never sing that song. Barack Obama was accused of not, quote, loving America. But when he went abroad, he told of an imperfect country that managed to come together, e pluribus unum, out of many one. He sang that song of America. Reagan did it. Even George W. Bush, who I profoundly disagreed with, when he went to Iraq, he didn't say, I'm here for the oil. He said, I'm here for freedom. Do we all believe that that was 100% true? Dick Cheney, right? No. But he said it. And this is the first president who won't say it. He said blatantly he doesn't believe in liberal democracy. He'd rather have an axis of autocrats where he and his autocrat friends all get rich. He'd rather be friends with Kim Jong-un than with the prime minister of Britain or the leader of France or the leader of Germany. He'd rather be friends with the Saudi dictator. 
He'd rather prop up the corruption that we see in Bibi Netanyahu, where his wife just got indicted for corruption. But he wants to be friends with people who have an autocratic tendency, who want to rinse their country of immigrants. The leader of Poland, Trump admires him. He's saying he wants immigrants out. The people who Trump admires and associates himself with are not the best the world has to offer. They're the people who want for themselves. Vladimir Putin is the worst example, someone who profoundly hates that America has led the world. He hates us. And Donald Trump loves him and admires him. It's shocking to me to watch the president of the United States convene with people like Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin and class himself as their friends and not friends of the West. So who leads the West when we don't lead? There isn't anyone. There isn't anyone, any country that has the power that we have, the power of our military or the power of our story. So if Donald Trump stays in power, that story is probably done. It would be very hard to get it back. It would be very hard to get back in the supply chain of freedom, the supply chain of that story of goodness and democracy. So I worry that we're just going to keep sliding. We'll keep sliding toward kleptocracy and autocracy, and Americans will learn to live with it. And then I don't really know what happens. You know, Joy, as we are now about two minutes out uh, from wrapping this program, and it's been very informative. Again, the man who sold America, get this book, read this book, challenge yourself. Joy, what is it? And you know how to wrap tight now with two minutes out. Um, <laughs> yes. What do you want people to take away? What's the most important thing you want people who read this book to walk away knowing? I want people to understand that what we are is fragile. What America built is not eternal. It can be taken apart by one person who's determined to take all that was built before him and just use it for himself and use it to enrich his family. We can have an American Mobutu easily. And so I want people to take away from this book that everything we built is fragile, but it's also we can protect it and that we are the people who can protect our democracy because unfortunately we don't have a government that's doing that now. And as you said, Sophia, whether you are a conservative or you're a liberal or a Republican or a Democrat, you may want to try to protect what this country built because there isn't anything else like it in the world. And if we decide we'd rather be an ethno-nationalist republic than a multiracial democracy, then God help us, but God help the world. Because the countries behind us that are vying for global leadership ain't us, and they don't care about democracy. They also just care about capital. And so I worry about a country that's sliding in that direction because no one will win but the super rich. So I just hope people take from this book that they should defend it, defend what we've got, and try to get back to being America as we envisioned ourselves to be. Well, Joy, thank you so much. Everybody, check her out on AM Joy on MSNBC on the weekends. Thank you, Joy, for what you do, my friend. I love the book, and uh, uh, good luck with it. Thank you. Thank you, Sophia.